0: John, I need to tell you something. Mm-hmm. I've been waking up every day this week and listening to I took a pill in Ibiza. <laughs> 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 it makes me what? so sad. <laughs> 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 I hadn't heard it before and then my wife like played it for me because we were talking about oh. like we were talking about pop songs that like just destroy you. So we were talking about like semi-trump kind of life, which when I heard it when I was a kid, you know, you're just like, bah. and then, you know, you get sober and you look around <laughs> at all your friends who, like <laughs> oh or you've taken the detox or whatever. And you're like, oh, <laughs> shit. <laughs> and then uh, I kept listening to I took a pill in Ibiza because it's uh it's just fucking tragic, man. It's like the fallen star story is always so
1: brutal. My analogous experience is like getting so burned out doing schoolwork that and so tired that I couldn't like look at an assignment I had to do. I just felt like too sad and like bad. So I would just like not do it and listen to like slowed down Doomer remixes of Radiohead. Just, oh like, dude, on was repeat. That, that,
0: is that, that like two week period where you just kept sending me new Doomer remixes you were finding on YouTube? And it was I did like, that before, but this trees? was actually,
1: yeah, I was returning to fake plastic trees and just like listening to it and deeply thinking about the lyrics while like crying inside
0: yeah, as I'm just like
1: so tired looking at like, you know, the night horizon or something (laughs) and just like, yeah, like what is real anymore? Like what am I even doing in school? What does this mean?
0: Yeah. I mean, it seems like (laughs) that level of what the fuck is going on. is just pervasive right now. Um, Especially as we go into like lockdown two, billionaire pharma boogaloo. Um, (laughs) So, okay. Today's another two piece We found some articles we want to talk to you guys about. They are related. The first one came out in ProPublica. It's called The Elk, the Tourists, and the Missing Coal Country Jobs by R.G. Dunlop. And it is about a totally, totally harebrained idea in Kentucky. Or like series of ideas to revitalize some stuff. I think in like Bell County, which has just been devastated ever since like coal mining died. Yeah. And it's basically like... It's the typical problem of like, okay, so we've lost this like industrial sector. What are we going to do? It's like, I know, we'll put a service economy on it. And there's this like plot of land that was supposed to be an industrial park in like the 80s, but that never happened. You know, building an industrial park after the first wave of offshoring seems like poor timing to me. And then they try to turn it into basically like, I don't know, like some crossover between Cabela's and Yellowstone. Mm -hmm. where you could like hunt elk and stuff on the property
1: yeah and it was i guess the intention was that like this would be sort of a tourist stop but Mm -hmm. i think he even said that like oh well we don't expect people to come here for this but we imagine that we're going to catch people as they're passing through and we'll get a lot of people that way but then someone else says that like not many people ever come through this part of kentucky Mm -hmm. and Even if they had fully set everything up, it's not entirely sure like what this was really supposed to accomplish And I don't they didn't even really finish building it this weird sort of like wildlife tourist attraction You know, I guess one thing that struck me about this and the piece We're going to talk about is that I always just thought that like in the business world If you had an idea what you had to do was like come up with a business plan where you like project profits and like how you're going to make money to recoup what you spend to do the thing and then money after that and then demonstrate in some like reasonable way to your investors oh here's how this is going to work and make some kind of sense but the things that we read it just seems like these people just like came up with like kind of stupid ideas that weren't fully researched or I, I don't know, maybe like the point was never to make money or build something. Maybe there is some completely esoteric point to this that I'll never understand. <laughs> but like from my point of view, it just seems like someone thought of something, like half implemented it, got a ton of money to do it, but it kind of just went nowhere and like stalled for a long time. And everyone around there was just kind of like, what's going on? The answer is uh, not being forthcoming at all.
0: Yeah, right. It's the thing we talked about in the um, Entrepreneur Brain episode, on Yeah, where you come up with a fake innovation, or, you know, like one of my, fa- oh, dude, one of my favorite things I've ever seen is like the idea of the, the Uber bus. You know, Never heard of it, it was just like, I remember seeing like a promo video for for it. I think it was something they were just kind of fooling around with. Maybe somebody gave a presentation. And the video was just like, well, you see, the bus will go on a pre planned route. And like they were acting like they were like inventing this totally new thing to like solve some of the ride sharing problems. And you're like, yeah, that's a public bus. Like that's, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we have those.
1: They were it, a good idea and do work. Yeah. You come up with that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and so when we're looking at this like whole country thing, you know, there's this very like, they interview some of the people that are just trying to get through the day, you know, some work a day people out there in Kentucky. And they're just like, I just want to work. I just want to be able to make decent money. I just want to be able to raise a family and have some level of prosperity. And I think that that's to me, like what's so heartbreaking about these Elk hunting parks or whatever that are brought through by this these politicians and then where does the money go? No one knows. The thing never gets built, and the idea is totally insane on its face. Like they're just like, yeah, we're projecting like, I don't know, hundred thousand to three hundred thousand people a year, and it's like the biggest national park in Kentucky is Mammoth Park. It doesn't even get that many people.
1: It gets like a fraction of that many people. Yeah. So it's sort of like you know I don't know some really like coked up guy like drives up and you get into the car with him and then he's going 80 miles an hour and he's like, yeah, dude, it's going to be amazing. Like, just trust me. And you like want out of the car, but you can't get out of the car. You know, you can't turn around. You're now stuck with this guy. Just like hoping that he'll just like slow down at a red light so you can hop out.
0: Oh my God, dude. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of when I was dealing with this dude who used to um, take me to 12-step meetings when i was first getting sober and i lived in the middle of nowhere in like upstate new york and he had to get me into like a small town in vermont this guy i had no car so this guy would come pick me up and he'd always have this like totally airbrushed like gremlin that he'd put like a fucking i don't don't know what's it called like nitrous in it so that it could like really go (laughs) um And insanely put it in like the roll cage or whatever it's called. So the fuel ran through that. And I was like, that's the fucking most insane. I was like, if we flip on this icy road, like we're going to blow up like in the movies. This is totally nuts. And he'd be like probably still partway drunk and like pick me up and like speed the whole way like through these country roads where they're iced over in winter. And I would just be like – my. Butthole would look like a fucking like one of Bruce Lee's fists because I'm just clenching it so hard, and he's just like telling me about all his insane business ideas, and I would just be like, I just need, I I need to get the fuck, I need to get the fuck out, I need to get the fuck out, I can't. And I imagine that that's what it feels like getting taken for a ride when you're living in one of these communities and somebody's in with all of these fucking big promises and it never works out again.
1: Yeah, I remember like Vice back when Vice seemed good had a documentary series about, I think it was West Virginia, and how, you know, where they're blasting off the mountain caps. And I guess there is a whole thing between them and the corporations about what that was doing to, like, the water table and whether or not it was Mm -hmm. getting severely polluted. And they had, you know, like, a corporate hydrologist saying that, like, no, it's, like, totally clean and fine. And if there is any problem, it came from anything but what the corporation did etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. but then you have like everyone who lives there is like sick like yeah. does not know why like lots of heavy metal poisoning i saw that at a time when i knew just like a little bit about things like that and about mm-hmm. places like west virginia but i remember it having such a big effect on me because they interviewed so many people who live there you sort of see like oh like yeah they they just like have to live here like this is where they live they can't easily go anywhere else it in some ways reminds you of like probably being in some Latin American country where your yeah. ass is basically owned by Nestle or something, yeah. and you don't really have any choices that's like there's no representation that matters, like you know, like mm-hmm. the same guy who's your senator and who's your congressman is just going to get voted back in forever, and he's like friends with the CEOs of the places that are like polluting your water mm-hmm. and the, the like what sucks is when the people who are polluting your water are gone, you also have no work. And like, you just have an extremely small amount of choices and opportunities and the ones that you have are hurting you. But when those are gone, it gets even worse. Yeah. And there's no clear like idea of what you're going to do. They interviewed one guy who was like one of the people who's pretty old and he seemed like pretty sick and he had to take 500 pills a day. Yeah. Just to get Um, through
0: the fucking day. Yeah.
1: And he was saying like, they were like, yeah, what, what do you think of all this? that's going on right now and he was just like you know well i just trust in god and i know that everybody is gonna get what's coming to him like kind of a thing you know like i just believe in the lord and like that's all i have to do and i was just like man like fuck
0: <laughs> yeah yeah you hear like, something like is, that yeah it just, like <laughs> it just breaks your heart it's like the um it's like the cover to black flags nervous breakdown ep where there's the one guy, like, holding a chair, like, backing another dude with his fists up into a corner. Mm-hmm. And you're like, yeah, that's how that feels. <laughs> you know, you've got, you've got nowhere to go. You know.
1: Yeah. That's it. And so I guess that forms, like, the, the bedrock of when I started getting into an understanding of this stuff. And I've ever mm-hmm. since then, you know, I think people have said before, like, places like West Virginia are just, like, sacrifice zones at this point. Totally. And I think that that that's pretty much the case. And so I don't really know that much about the guy who proposed this elk thing. I, so I can't say that like, he's like a Silicon Valley moron. I doubt that he actually is or is connected to that world, but it's definitely like that manner of thinking where you just sort of show up with like a dumb idea and people throw money at you and it either like works or it doesn't, but like whatever happens, you're like on to the next thing. And doesn't really matter like what the consequences were or who was counting on you to not be an idiot.
0: Basically, it feels like there's a whole mid-tier of our country that's run by Dr. Roxo. (laughs) You know, like, uh, (laughs) whether they mean to do that or not, that's really what the effect is. It reminds me of like the way people got fucked over after Katrina. Mm -hmm. Just totally insane. Like the way they were just like, not repair houses, paint them to look nice, sell them to people, get some fat check from the government, and then, like, fuck off, and, you know, all this stuff. You know, West Virginia, I think, is probably an easier correlation to what happens after Katrina because it's there, it's in, like, New Orleans, it's in West Virginia where all the uh, opioid shit really pops off, you know, and just, like, fucking wrecks those areas. Like, you can say that, like, yeah, it was, like, bad with the... Crack epidemic and stuff like that, and we turned like black neighborhoods into like sacrifice zones, and that's true. But the crack epidemic killed like two people per 100k Americans. The opioid epidemic kills like between 40 and 60 per a thousand k or 100k, depending on where you live. Like that is literally an order of magnitude bigger, and. Which is to say that it's only gotten worse for America's working class in that way, white or black or whatever. You know, yeah, and there's this like feeling of these people in power never getting held accountable. I mean, when I lived in New Mexico, I very much felt like that. Like, you'd see these families that had had some political status since the 1600s during the Spanish Inquisition, and there's, like, no way that things operate well, like, when that happens. There's just, it's like, that's impossible. Like, you know that everything is just, like graft <laughs> you
1: know <laughs> <laughs> and i think too well it's an interesting story but i think the next one um adds another layer to it uh and says a lot maybe about we can get into it you know trump ran on the idea that he was going to bring jobs back to places like that and one of the big places where he uh, barely won was wisconsin in 2016 yeah and so he sort of made it a part of his campaign and his administration that that he was going to bring jobs to Wisconsin. And his big plan was a Foxconn built and operated LCD screen uh, manufacturing center, which was going to be, you know, like a new wonder of the world, supposedly. Mm -hmm. And kind of the way in which that plays out very similarly, yet very differently and almost in some ways more tragically somehow. Um, yeah
0: because there's like something there so this is from this was published in the verge this is the eighth wonder of the world by josh D'Asisia. and this was just a profoundly fucking depressing piece to read look if we take a look at what happens to the manufacturing base in the midwest it gets totally destroyed between like the 1970s and especially like 08 you know like which is you know once you lose a job like that Like, let's say you're working on the line at like a GM plant or whatever. You're making $30 an hour. You know, you've got a good union job. And then that plant closes. You can't just like go get like some other job that's going to replace that immediately or anything. Like there's nothing. It's hard to characterize what type of loss that is. Both for society, because you have a worker who actually has like a certain amount of skills, even if they're working on a factory line, they can never use again. And what it does to a region like there is a whole economic ecosystem for lack of a better term that thrives off of these things. Like one of the phrases for it is like path dependency, right? So you have this big industrial thing that increases wages and then that allows for a service economy around it. In the 1970s. money
1: to spend money.
0: Yeah, exactly. So in the 1970s, there is a small town in New York. I forget what it's called, but it loses both its car factory Uh, whatever it was, and it loses a Montgomery Ward, like in the same two-year period. And it was so devastating to the town that at a certain point, like everybody had the same bumper sticker that uh, says, well, the last person to leave town, please shut out the lights. You know, that's how devastating it was. So one of the ways that America, oh, I shouldn't say America, some American like businessmen and maybe some politicians decide to do this is to bring people like Foxconn in or Yao and have them build factories that are chinese owned but american operated and that's how they're going to do it but of course like there is no one more hostile to a union shop than china or japan the wages are way lower they don't <clears throat> give a shit about environmental regulations not that as we were just talking about like most american corporations do but they at least like have a sense that they should abide by some rules and they just don't necessarily need to deliver because sometimes it's just a political game. And that's what this Foxconn thing is.
1: Yeah, so Trump basically is able to make much publicity on the fact that he's talked with the head of Foxconn. Terry Gow, and, I
0: think his name is.
1: Yeah, and Terry's going to bring uh, a big LCD plant to Wisconsin. It's a big win, awesome, et cetera, et cetera. There's, you know, like photo ops, news stories or whatever. People in Wisconsin are... It seems like the atmosphere was they were generally actually pretty excited. And they were like, yeah, this is going to be awesome. We're going to have a place to go work. It seems like it's going to be pretty big. And they had an agreement with the Wisconsin government where they were going to get subsidies each year for having a certain number of employees there at the plant. And so if they hit their numbers each year, they would continue to get subsidies. So I think there was like generally just this atmosphere of optimism is how it sounded Maybe some of it was cautious because I guess Terry Gow is known for doing this thing where he just like says he's going to do something, mm-hmm. but like it never materializes, and this has happened around the world over the yeah, past ten or Brazil, fifteen years.
0: Mexico, like wherever, you know,
1: he's done this whole song and dance before. And the interesting thing was why uh, that seems to happen, which the article gets into at some length. Is Foxconn is I guess operated it's not like a single entity so much as a Mm -hmm. collection of organizations which are competitive with one another to some extent and they each operate semi-autonomously in a kind of strange way i would be interesting just to actually go look at their corporate structure sometime because only a small amount of it really came through in this article but it sounded sort of bizarre Apparently Terry Gao, you know, has said like he thinks the best way to run a corporation is a dictatorship, but this doesn't really seem like a classic dictatorship. What happens is they dispatch a local like head guy to come here to run the uh, the operation. That guy can't really do anything without submitting it back to Taiwan and getting the budget approved, and if the budget doesn't get approved then just nothing happens. Everything has to be submitted back in some sort of crazy, like they have no, you can't come over here with just like, okay, like we've approved your plan and this money, Mm
0: -hmm. you come over
1: here with nothing approved and then see if something gets approved and then maybe you can do it. Yeah. And with that kind of operating structure, they show up, start hiring people, but like nothing's really happening. And they're, they bought office buildings to work in. They were super old, The like elevators were broken. So you would commonly get stuck in the elevator. It's just not like a very inspiring atmosphere. (laughs) Water was
0: like leaking from the ceiling.
1: Yeah, like there were water leaks and people were kind of like, okay, like when are we going to get started? Like when is this going to happen? Things really going on. There's like half built buildings sitting around in the land they bought. It's sort of like strange. And what slowly becomes clear is that the LCD manufacturing idea was just like somebody spitballing. Yeah, it turns out that that actually like there's no way to make money doing that in Wisconsin. You just have to do too much. It's too difficult. Well, then it might put
0: you in competition directly with other American firms.
1: And they didn't really approve it. What they said was figure out something else to do to make money. And so what you actually had was like a huge real estate purchase and like all these sorts of promises. But then no idea what we were actually going to do. So they ran the idea of like, oh, could we do dairy but then talks with like the Dairy Association broke down and like nothing came of that. And they are like, oh, could we do, like we have a lot of water. We could do like fish farming or something. And it's mm-hmm. just sort of like anything that someone can think of. They try to do it. Eventually it either hits a roadblock or like the money doesn't come through from mm-hmm. back to Taiwan. And then the people in charge get changed out after, you know, coming up with nothing. And then a new guy shows up And apparently, you know, I think you could maybe talk more about this having just watched the American Factory documentary. The way in which, um, in this case, Taiwanese management interacts with American labor in a really interesting way.
0: Yeah, so it seems like the general template is like, so Foxconn is a Taiwanese company, right? So it's not necessarily Chinese, obviously. Yeah, but they have a pretty,
1: like, the labor Mm -hmm. story, I think, in like it's Taiwan, pretty identical. South Korea, Japan, like, yeah. Like, it's pretty, you know. it's pretty,
0: you know, it's, it's quite, I don't want to say uniform, but there are a lot of similarities there. So the general idea at first with these things is like, okay, this is going to be XYZ owned, like whatever country. So this is going to be owned by a Taiwanese firm and our management is going to be American because we want, you know, it to feel like a partnership are one world, whatever, And it'll just be easier because it's a way to smooth over some of the cultural differences or what have you. But then at some point, for whatever reason, those cultural differences and political interests, of course, hurt or make impossible that sort of management framework. So then all the yanks get fired and then they onboard more of their guys from their home country and they are masterful at crushing unionization attempts or just like brutalizing the workers. It doesn't even make them, not even making them more efficient or whatever. As with the Foxconn thing, there's nothing to do. So there's just sort of like out and out, like chauvinistic cruelty happening everywhere. You know, so one of the guys, uh, I think his name is Brand, uh, this uh, real fucking brain genius they bring in from Taiwan to run this Foxconn thing, decides to have all of the American um, staff or whatever watch the movie American Family, which is about... In Dayton, Ohio, there was a G- GM plant that closes in 2008, despite the big bailouts the automotive industry got after the financial crash. And so the factory goes dormant for a few years, and then it gets bought by Fuyao, uh, which is an automotive glass firm in China. A lot of people who used to work at the GM plant get rehired. You know, instead of making 30 an hour, they're making 13, but they're just happy to have a job at this point because their lives are so desperate. After the way they've just been laid waste, and the same dynamic points out, uh, plays out. You know, you have American management. They feel like they can't really just totally semi illegally destroy a unionization attempt because we have labor laws <laughs> that is not acceptable to Fuya. So they fire all of American management crush the attempt at unionization and are basically like, you know, Americans are spoiled. They're too individualistic. They need to be kind of broken down. Like you have to flatter them into doing whatever. I mean, some of this is probably true in some way. Like when one of the corporate guys is like reading off stuff to the new Chinese employees that work there. He's basically reading like a Sparknotes version of Tocqueville's Democracy in America. It's really striking. You know, it ends up ruining a lot of people's lives. And then at the end of American Factory, like automation moves in. And so like, even more people are getting fired. So imagine that you're sitting in Wisconsin at this Foxconn thing that won't get off the ground with new Taiwanese management that one dude makes a finger gun, points it to your head and says, you know, if you don't do this, I'll find somebody who will just like that, which is something that happens in this. And this guy wants you to watch this movie because he thinks it's like a, a beautiful story. About the triumph of industry. And you're just like, holy shit. Like, this is another version of what's happening to me right now. Except to Fuyao's credit, they actually make shit. And that's exactly what happened. Brand comes in, he's like, you guys need to watch this. You know, it was very clarifying to me that this sort of whole business class is very international and sees things the same way, in that, First of all, in the American Factory documentary, which I was like fucking furious for hours after watching it, John and Canada Mike really bore the brunt of my frustration after that. You know, you see how American management really wants to ingratiate itself to Fuyao and they really like believe in the project or whatever. And then of course they all get let go. And then they're like, yeah, I guess maybe the workers should have unionized. And you're like, fuck you, buddy. You screwed over your own countrymen. Like, one of them is talking when they go over to, the management goes over to China, and he's talking to one of the Chinese managers, and he's just like, if we could put duct tape over American workers' mouths, they'd get more done. And I was just like, dude, fuck you. Like, you're a piece of shit for saying something like that. I cannot believe you right now. Like that was how- an
1: American manager?
0: Yeah, he said that to a Chinese manager. Oh. Uh, like, geez. I know. And you're just like, you're like, I'm. I'm going to get canceled if I fucking talk about how that made me feel. (laughs) But, uh, you know, also that the entrepreneur brain stuff is international. And that's what the Foxconn thing really reveals. This brand guy is just like, well, maybe we could do like an office renting thing. Like we could do, we could call it Blaze and it'll be like WeWork for Wisconsin. But uh, as any about listener knows in our entrepreneur brain thing, we go into how WeWork is basically just a shell game that is a total cult of personality, crock of shit that never made any money and never made any sense. And of course has gotten, it was already in trouble before the coronavirus broke out. And now I think it's just like pretty much more of a, despite generating billions. So like, that's basically the cache of ideas that people have.
1: Yeah, that's, I think it would be interesting at some point to try and get into the way in which business is changing. Like we could say, for instance, in Japan, because I typically, a lot of expats over there want to work in the more Western style companies and they think that that's like better Overall because it's like oh like it's just a bunch of people they have ideas. They're like innovating disrupting like it's truly amazing And like you're not like bogged down with hierarchies and red tape and like
0: move fast and break things
1: Yeah, and I think on some level like yeah There's probably a lot about a like very traditional Japanese company that could annoy one if they work there for sure but I think it's as is so often the case, people are really too eager to throw the baby out with the bathwater when looking at things like that, because I would imagine also at a very traditional Japanese company, they've got a business model they've been working with for probably longer than you've been alive, where they like, you know, they make something that goes somewhere and does something people pay for it. They're really integrated into like a functional sh- economic structure. They're very loath to like do new things just because they are new and yeah. in some ways people are like that's comical They still fax everything all the time. Why do they do that or whatever? And it's like, yeah, maybe that's crazy But like so what like, you know what I mean? Because on the opposite side of the world you have like blaze We, You know what I mean? Like yeah. you have things that don't do anything don't mean anything and don't go anywhere and they collapse in like two years And so I think it is interesting to see like, okay, they're now perhaps more and more people globally are getting like mentally colonized by this kind of thinking yeah,
0: by Silicon Valley thinking.
1: It, yeah, yeah. Like, so I don't know, just as an aside, like that's one really interesting facet of this.
0: That That was one of the things that I found really interesting, you know, because I think that there's this tendency in the West, you know, people who are really upset about how America has lost its manufacturing lost as if we like misplaced it uh shit got fucking offshored because it was good for these like fucking scumbag management assholes and now they're making these shitty deals where china gets to build factories here but we don't get to build factories over there which is something about to return to in a little bit so it was funny to see that like there's this like international silicon valley like hit that goddamn innovate button type shit happening but what was really sad about this is first of all like There are a lot of people who get really, like, fucking exploited by this Foxconn thing. And the worst part is, like, when Foxconn starts, like, hiring Chinese and Indian immigrants who have, like, H-1B visas...
1: That was amazing.
0: Exploiting the shit out of them. And they're just like, well, they'll be harder working than Americans. And then you realize what that really means. What that means is that like, their, their ability to stay here is so tenu- tenuous that they can be ruthlessly exploited by Foxconn management. Because one of the guys is just straight up like, "You know, I'm an EB2, you're an H1B. All I have to do is snap my fingers and your fucking life here is over. And some of the Americans were like, this is crazy what they're doing to these people. Yeah. This is nuts. So look, like let's say you live in one of these places, right? Listener, maybe you do. Maybe this isn't theoretical to you. Maybe you live just outside Detroit, maybe Dayton, Ohio. Maybe you live in Wisconsin or West Virginia or any of the places that we're talking about. And if you've lived in flyover country, you know that people are desperate to be put to work. You know that in fact, some of these were really bad deals like the Fuyao plant or whatever, like that's a bad deal for America, right? And so if you hear somebody, even if you know that they're the piece of shit billionaire who does not care about you in some way, say on national TV, these are bad deals. America's been screwed over by these deals. Who made these deals? Worst deals in the history of America. And you know what else sucked? The Iraq war. Why did we even do that? (laughs) I just want to make America great again. I want to get back to winning. Of course, that's compelling because that speaks to your reality. True, right? It's true. And no one else has been saying that. Everybody else is just like, well, you'll learn to code. You'll be fine. It's okay. We'll just do creative destruction and it'll all work out on balance. Now, creative destruction always means, for the most part, destruction for the working class and creation for the upper class. Now, the guy who you put in office or if whether or not you put him in office maybe you hope is going to make some good deals for America ends up cutting the same unbelievable really unbelievable and i don't mean unbelievable in terms of like who could have imagined that this fucking narcissistic asshole wasn't going to come through i think you could have predicted that however i think that if you're desperate enough or if you've been trampled upon enough that you might have held out some hope that something might have happened there that maybe at least a couple things might have gone right And instead, it's the same old song and dance. I think this is what's really sad to me about sort of the right-wing populist turn is that we really didn't get any populism out of it. And that sucks. Uh, The most Trump did really to me is like uh, not start another land war. So, you know, props. It's hard for American presidents to avoid that. And saving a few thousand jobs at the TVA, which the left didn't even give a shit about. No one was there for them. You know, but Trump was. He was. He was. Yeah. Trump was there to defend the most enduring part of the fucking New Deal. But otherwise, what? What? I mean, when you, when you read this article, when I watched American Factory, as you said, John, it felt like I wasn't living in a fucking nation state anymore. I was like, a, you know, I get, I get, I'm not an idiot. I get that, like, the class compromise of the nation state or whatever, like, is always tenuous or contradictory or can't hold. But it is still, at least at a moral level, astounding that people would do their countrymen like that.
1: yeah i don't i'm willing to stand behind the idea that like the idea well, we'll say like the like enlightenment liberal idea of like a nation state a social contract like those sorts of things that may or may not be kind of nebulous um, but generally encompass a certain set of understandings like just really no longer feel like they apply here to most places it's not it doesn't even feel like the Class compromise is like shifting to favor someone or someone else because I, you know, that would make me think like what will soon be the subject of a series of shows next year South Korea, where there was a class compromise, but it was between a military dictatorship officer class and a nascent like capitalist class. And the compromise was like, you're going to deliver on rapidly industrializing this country, and in exchange, you won't get jailed or killed (laughs) and like, (laughs) yeah,
0: I won't murder your whole family.
1: Yeah. And workers were a part of that. They were just a ruthless, ruthlessly exploited part of that, but they were not, they were meaningful to the system. Um, They were meaningful to the whole thing and they were eventually able to like build a real labor movement, like which, you know, through, I mean, the only reason it took so long was because you would just die if you tried, and many people did for a very long time. Um, But eventually, things changed enough in that country that they were able to secure some basic, reasonable standards of living compared to what had only been going on not that long ago. They were always a part of the picture. So you could say like the nation-state class compromises there have been different at different times, but it feels like here it's not really like compromises like these people just aren't a part of the meaningful picture like it's kind of different and kind in that way like people in a deindustrialized zone don't really matter the only reason that we talk about them at all is because the democrats have kind of thrown away trying to get their vote and the republicans have realized that they can pander to them to get some votes and like that electoral college structure It's probably the only reason anyone really cares about these places or these people. Even if it is only to extremely cynically make promises to extract support that are then not followed through on. But it's not Mm -hmm. like that set up to me. That's not like, okay, we're all a part of the same society. That's like, you just happen to be here and I can't get rid of you. And yeah, I'll use you for what you can do for me. But that's about it, and yeah. like
0: you won't die fast enough for me to step over you.
1: Yeah, I think consequently, it's very hard for us these days to think of like living in the United States as we all live in the same place and like we're all mm-hmm. in this together on some level. Whereas in other countries, pick your pick whichever one you like that you can think of that's still something that they can like sort of generally believe in, no matter. How complicated it is on the ground. There's still this idea of like, well, at the end of the day, we're all still blank, you know.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. Like, I mean, go to go to France. You know? Yeah. Like that's we're the all French. Yeah. Like the whole the whole like. Unless you're not. Diffi- yeah. Unless you're not. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that's that's the whole thing, right? I mean, and let's say that you know uh, creates plenty of difficulties, but it's palpable.
1: Whereas here, I think uh, it almost feels like we exist in a sort of loosely enforced free trade zone.
0: You know, I was reading Christopher Caldwell's uh, The Age of Entitlement, America Since the 60s, which there was, I, I found a very provocative book. And there was plenty to agree with, plenty to disagree with, and plenty to rethink after reading that, which is really what you want out of a book. One of the things that he, de- he says is that, like, in some ways, Reagan's presidency really confirms the cultural coup of the 60s, because there's very little difference between do your own thing and every man for himself. And like, that's sort of where we are now. And I think like the politics around lockdown really operate in that same way. Like maybe it's true at an epidemiological level that like we all need to do that. But you can't then just ignore some of the political realities of that, which is that it has been a huge boom to the billionaire class in American big business. And it has absolutely once again plundered and immiserated everyone who was working class or poor before this. And it really just does feel like people are being left out in the cold to die. It really does.
1: And when people are like, I want to deal with this issue in like a very humanitarian, entrepreneurial way, I think what you get, it is sort of like Robert Reich's vision that you're going to have like a knowledge people class and then a service class for those people because the only perhaps ideas that anyone can come up with that sort of make any sense are like how can we take these people in deindustrialized areas and somehow plug them into a way of servicing the knowledge class because yeah. like i don't know that that's the only business model that actually makes any sense like obviously not but that's the only one that like we can kind of culturally understand anymore is mm-hmm. like how can we set this up and i think one of the things that we're seeing probably more of now is people don't really want to live in San Francisco anymore. It's just too expensive. And
0: and it also I, was like fucking Dubai.
1: Yeah. Like I used and- to
0: go there. I used to fly out there every month for work and like, dude, the homelessness shit out there. Holy fuck, man. Like I live in Los Angeles and it's bad here. Listener, if you've never been there, it's like walking through a DMZ. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's just like, you know, I had a friend who went back to like close down their apartment or whatever. And they like walk out of BART and in the U.N. building, like, you know, downtown San Francisco or wherever it is, it's just like several hundred people just sitting on the lawn of that, just like openly shooting up. Like, <laughs> I, and that's not like a moral, like, oh, they're fucking, you know, if only they had a Protestant work ethic, they'd be OK. Just you need to see that for what it is, though, without you don't have to do the moral judgment that that is totally nuts. Yeah. Like, that's bad. (laughs) You could be like, oh, it's good that we decriminalized drugs. It's like, yeah, but we didn't really put any social services there to catch people when they fall. And like, yeah, prison probably wasn't like the best way to handle that. But like, just letting that shit happen to people, if you think that that's all right, like, and you just, all you have to do is like put them in a house. I'm sorry, you don't understand how addiction works. You really fucking don't.
1: Yeah, I think to some extent, if you don't know people who are just destroyed and eventually die from yeah. falling into that, it's kind of maybe more theoretical. And it is like, yeah, we shouldn't put them in prison, probably. Like, that doesn't seem like it's going to overall be good.
0: Yeah. What but good does that create?
1: You do need to figure something out because, you're like, you know, it's a huge problem. But, like, So what I was thinking was like people are leaving places like that and they're going to the Midwest because it's cheap and they can get land and sort of like, I don't know, live out their peaceful life while remote working for Google or whatever. And that makes me wonder, like, will that happen to a great enough extent that you can actually reconstitute some of these formerly industrial centers around servicing a new nascent burgeoning PMC administrative knowledge worker class that is now going to be relocating to these places because their money goes further there for the time being. I don't know. I don't know how much that'll happen or is possible, but it does make me think we really can't imagine any way of putting people to work outside of Robert Reich's really simplistic like binary economy idea.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's right. And it's also like, so here's an interesting political problem. You get a real thickening of civil society when do that. So let's say you take politics off the table, right? There's no alternative. The state's job is to paradoxically enforce the conditions that make natural competition better. Okay, fine. You're going to do that. That has its own consequences, but whatever. We're going to take that as a given. And again, there is an alternative, so don't even think about a different way of doing things. That's not what politics is about. It's about small incremental changes. Don't expect too much of it. But that doesn't mean that you can't launch a shoe company that takes some of its proceeds and donates it to like whatever series of nonprofits that handle food banks or whatever in these areas. Now, it's probably good that those food banks exist, right? Especially right now, because there's nothing else. But again, like the lockdown thing, you can't ignore some of the political realities of that. That it creates a whole class of people whose interests are bound up in maintaining these civil society structures that depend on a defunct political order operating in perpetuity.
1: I feel like a lot of that is behind the idea that the only way to fix anything is to grow the bureaucratic structure and like, oh accidentally employ more college grads you know
0: yeah and to like you know secure donors from the elite or whatever who can sort of like launder their guilt like you know if you log on to amazon.com there's that like running tab of how much money it gives to charity or whatever you know all this type of bullshit
1: one of the things that this made me think about on a like pretty big scale was historically what does this call up for me? And it's sort of that like agrarian societies, for better or for worse, you don't move the farms away for no. You know what I mean? Like the farms are just there. If you don't totally screw up the land by doing bad farming practices, you just farm every year. And like your uncertainty in that situation is going to be like famine, pestilence, things of that nature, to the extent that you can do things to hold those off or whatever, you know, like that's the volatility It's like maybe not having enough food. However, once farming gets mechanized and moved elsewhere and done by fewer people, and then you kind of have primitive accumulation, forcing people out of the farms and into the cities so they can go work at the factory, like, you know, kind of the basic story of like top down state enforced forced industrialization that happens across the world. I don't know, it feels like to me, that's not really, in most places, that was not a market operation. Like that was not an economic choice made by a free person. It was quite often a choice made by somebody who didn't have a choice. And I feel like if you're going to do that as a state, I mean, and who cares what your responsibility is anymore? No one cares. But like your responsibility is then that like, okay, you have to now take care of these people that you forced into performing this function so that you, the state could grow in like power influence and stability, like, you know, security, maybe the whole story. It's in your own interest.
0: Yeah. It's in your own interest that you at least throw these people a fucking bone.
1: Yeah. And so you have in Japan, like lifetime employment, well, it's getting eroded right now, but like for a long time, there was way more basic job security for whatever your work conditions might have been than existed in many other places and it's just it seems to me that like it is a very hard sell for me for someone to say like well it's up to them to figure out what to do now because it really like nothing about this was up to them from the beginning until now like things industries popped up there but it wasn't really up to them industries got moved away and it wasn't really up to them and so I can't really imagine a situation in which it's like up to them like the line of thinking doesn't really hold for me and i think in a lot like this was maybe one of the really basic debates of the 20th century is like how is the state going to guarantee some like stability and standards of living for its industrial workers or in some cases in europe now like post-industrial workers um and like how are they going to figure that out. And the answer to that largely depends on like where in the world you are, what your natural resources have. Like, do you have oil? You know, are you Scandinavia? So how are you going to figure this out? What are you going to do for these people? And it seems like in many places you got what could be referred to as a sort of like semi-corporatist system where you classify people as different groups, however you want to do that. And they are given some direct ability to like bargain with the state for the things that they need. And the state takes care of them as groups of people in exchange for like social stability and other things that they want. So you have like interest group formations and this is, um, you know, something that happens across Europe in the aftermath of world war two in different places and in yeah, different it ways happens here too. Yeah. Oh yeah. So there's this basic understanding that like the state is going to operate somewhat on your behalf because otherwise the whole thing falls apart. Like, you know, like nothing works anymore. And I feel like what we have here is the realization that like things can fall apart in a lot of places and it won't really affect a lot of people. uh, I.e. the people who like make these decisions and form like Christopher Lash's international business class, like the people flitting from Cosmopolis to Cosmopolis across the world
0: yeah, totally. Like, in case you guys uh, forget, like, it's not like Foxconn is super great to its domestic workers or whatever. You know, that's yeah. where they operate those plants where people just, like, fucking commit suicide. And uh, I remember when that became a whole scandal and they basically hired, like, a bunch of poor and homeless people to wear I love Foxconn shirts and, like, walk around, you know. And, of course, they just look totally, like, dead-eyed and immiserated while they're doing it, um, you know. And, like, that's... Uh, and, like, I, we said, like, the Silicon Valley ideology... It's now like internationalized. It's like these people, these international business elites just feel like they can always pull up stakes and get the fuck out if they need to. You know, it might be a little more complicated where you got like a one party state in China or whatever that's loathe to let its business people just do whatever the fuck they want.
1: Well, even there you have, I mean, the supposition is that a lot of the real estate investment in like Vancouver and elsewhere, you know, where like, somebody gets off the plane from China with like duffel bags full of cash and just buys like million dollar homes, billion, you know, like spends so much money. Uh, The supposition is that like that is a place to stick your money that you snuck out of China to evade capital controls so that you have, it seems like a good deal of people realize that there's not guaranteed stability there for them. And that if they need to, they need to have money and a place to go where they can continue living their standard of living and their kind of social position as a rich, important person. That's a sort of way of internationalizing that's happening, even in a place like China, where you might think, Oh, like, there definitely is a lot more party control of the state in certain ways. And there is a lot more reliance upon um, a real industrial base. Like you can't Mm -hmm. just ignore everything that goes on in the country because the country's economy to some extent, depends on its industrial performance, which means like real people working in real places mm-hmm. with real significance. But I would say even there, there is like a segment of the wealthy population that is ready to like duck out as soon as things don't look good anymore.
0: Bring it back to our episode with Olivier Jutel, sort of like Peter Thiel buying up huge parts of New Zealand. He's not obviously not the only Silicon Valley guy that's done that in case climate change gets too fucking weird or whatever, um, and these people can just be like okay, bye. Then I'll have to take care of any of this stuff. This just feels like such an incredible lack of responsibility. I really like, I don't know how I keep being surprised by this, to be honest. There's so many versions of this throughout history. You know, we read Lash, we take a look at this shit, you know, we're going to expand, do a series on South Korea, etc. Take a look at stuff over there too. You know, no place is heaven on earth but I just feel totally demoralized sometimes by the lack of dignity, the lack of regard and the lack of responsibility that seem to govern our society. Maybe, you know, as a, as a friend of mine once said that I would always be no matter what happened, like a soft hearted Catholic, you know, that I would still see the world through the prism of like the Jesuit school. I went to Ad Majorem Dei Glorium for the greater glory of God that whatever you did, you had to have other people in mind. I don't want to be like, I'm fucking morally superior or whatever. I mean, I do think I'm morally superior than some of the fucking people that run this country. And I think if you're listening to this, you probably are too. (laughs) I don't think that that's hard. I think that's a pretty low bar. But uh, I think the lack of any ethic that encourages goodwill and just a baseline of giving a shit in a way where you actually do things for other people just seems absent. And that- has led to a culture of despair, I think, that expresses itself differently if you have money, but is very palpable, you know, if you've ever lived in a neighborhood where you can hear gunshots at night, Hmm. whatever. Uh, I definitely have. And uh, people don't give a shit because they can't. There's nothing to give a shit about. There's no future. There's no future. So, John, what I have learned from recording this episode with you is that nothing feels possible.
1: Yeah, Weird.
0: Amazing how we came to that conclusion. It's almost like we're uh, looking for it.
1: I feel like this stuff really popped onto my radar thanks to 2016 in a big way because I didn't, too young to like know much about these issues at the time. I think I just cycled through like commonly available political positions online or something. But I think when that happened and I got exposed to like the Trump campaign rhetoric, I started to look into it. And at the time it was extremely difficult to find anything about like China gaining most favored nation status in the world trade organization. Mm -hmm. Like that whole thing, very hard to find any like decent criticism of it online. Like I tried Googling so many things and all I got was a really like a 90s newspaper article where they interviewed this like trader, a wall street guy this was right before something happened with uh, the World Trade Organization in China. He was saying like, yeah, everybody's saying like, oh, don't worry, this is going to bring so much money into America. And he was like, but that's a lie. We're moving everything to China. Like, that's what's happening right now. Like, industries are being moved out of this country. That's it. And I was like, this was in like the New York Times or something, like one of the Mm -hmm. big papers, like the day of it happening. And it seems like totally a forgotten note in history.
0: Yeah, and it's important that like, For all of his uh, many faults, Ross Perot was one of the few people in the 90s that was banging the drum about that. You know, you hear that big sucking sound, you know? (laughs) 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 There's there's a debate that's going to happen, right? Who gets sent to sort of dispatch Ross Perot and all of that? Bill Clinton's lesser political half, Al Gore. And Al Gore... uh, Brings a photo of the guys who did like the Smoot-Hawley tariff or whatever it was, which to some real supply side truthers functions as a sort of legitimate rape theory of economics in terms of its efficacy. And that what leads to the entire great depression is actually just this one tariff, you know, not like the fucking international banking collapse because a bunch of people were being totally funny with the money in the twenties. Um, <laughs> that wasn't it. It was this one fucking tariff. And he brought a portrait of that to give to whoever's, I think it was probably Ross Perot himself or Ross Perot's running mate. And it was basically like, everything's going to be fine. You see, if you do anything like this, it's going to lead to another great depression. That was the Democrats who did that.
1: Yeah, that's basically, I think, what we're coming to terms with for a long time now is that that is what the Democratic Party turned into with the expectation that their, like, legacy would hang on to enough voters from the class that they were no longer interested in, that they could maintain themselves as, like, the legitimate national party.
0: That's not what happened.
1: <laughs> no, no, and it it's just... Every day I see it more and more clearly in my head and I don't know, I guess it's hard to express it to other people in a really succinct way because for me, it's been sinking in for years that you have a lot of people in the media who really care about certain issues and what unites them all is that like they've all been to college usually, even if they're from like a minority background Usually they've been to college, even if they're a first generation college student, they still went to college and they're now plugging in to either academic or like administrative or some form of like bureaucratic or semi-bureaucratic structure. And now rehearsing a list of issues, grievances and ideas that are basically inculcated and socialized into you in the college setting, if not somewhere else before that has really nothing to do with like most places in the country or if it, you know, like take something like, okay, issues of racism, which is extremely broad is an idea, but like, we'll say like racist actions against black people in the country. They take something that is definitely true and happens in so many different ways. And we have, you know, like an abundance of literature from the same class of people about that. And much of it is decent, informative, and good. And they warp that into like a means of advocating for their class position and for increasing their class power by activating more bureaucratic structures. Because these are things that need to be ameliorated only by trained knowledge professionals out there and it's, that's why you need to vote Democrat and increase the like anti-racist bureaus, you know, make a federal bureau, make state bureaus, like whatever you got to do so that they can fix these problems. But when you look at that from far enough away, you're like, oh, you guys just need more jobs. So you're trying to get more jobs because you have the actual ability to like advocate for yourselves to have more jobs. Yeah. Unlike most people in the Yeah, You country. don't live in the
0: sacrifice zone of Detroit where people can't get fucking running water. Like you don't live in Flint, you know, you don't live in like the still blighted parts of new Orleans or fucking West Virginia or wherever.
1: And that's the crazy thing about the places you just mentioned is like most of those places are not majority white, but that is sort of the narrative that has emerged. Is that like, Oh mm-hmm. Well, you see, when you talk about those places, you're talking about places full of white people, and white people are going to get what's coming to them. And who gives a fuck about them? They're bad. But, like, that's just not true. The Midwest is full of people of, like, every kind of extraction you can have. Honestly, Dearborn, Michigan is, like, the capital of, like, American Muslims, like, in terms of per capita. You know, there's a lot of, latino people in all kinds of places in the midwest and that feels like that's never really talked about much because the narrative (laughs) is always like the white working class the white working class or whatever and like detroit new orleans etc like obviously there are very large populations of black people all throughout there Mm -hmm. but you have like what's basically a lie which is that this is only affecting white people and they were racist enough to kind of have it coming to them and and Mm -hmm. you know like they're the past this is the future just forget about it don't think about it they're too christian they like guns too much like any number of methods of like misdirection distraction or outright like dishonesty are used to make this issue seem like it's not an issue or if it is an issue that it's like an issue that only affects white people
0: Mm -hmm.
1: none of that is true and i feel like i can't really say like oh these people are they mean to outright lie because I have a feeling that most of them have never and will never go to these places. So they don't really know. Yeah. Like, they don't know. The yeah. best thing
0: that ever happened to me was that after college, I stayed out in different parts of flyover country and worked like shitty service jobs for the majority of it. That was probably the most instructive thing that ever happened. to me. was like working that shitty dishwashing job with you at fucking cool beans cafe or wherever.
1: Are you saying that a Maoist labor camp would <laughs> be the yeah. education yeah, be, that that's the, the way. intellectual classes need.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I mean I think it's <laughs> <laughs> I think it's that um it really makes you realize that like there are plenty of fucking racist pieces of shit out there.
1: Totally. Like, that's
0: that's true of the world. But one thing that I learned is that like that's not most people, man. It really yeah. isn't. That's just not. That's not true. That's a totally misanthropic bourgeois delusion. It's used to basically create the class self-serving feedback loop that you've just articulated. It's anti-democratic. And I think it's on its face wrong. You know, you see all this stuff after the Trump election where it's just like, you know, white people need to be fucking dealt with. Like, look how many of them went for Trump. What the fuck are you talking First of all, not only white people voted for Trump, You know, there's that difficult fact. I just love how people just like, they're like (laughs) an Olympic hurdler anytime there's like an inconvenient fact, you know, they really go for that gold medal when that happens. But there's only so much utility to these lenses anyway. I encourage anybody to watch that American Factory document because it's clear to like the black workers and stuff like that, that the only shot they're going to get at like having some control over their lives is having that union. And some of them used to be in a union and know what that's like. And you see people standing in solidarity with each other, regardless of whatever those divisions are. That's possible, you know. That's possible.
1: It happens, but you'll definitely only see it on like a shaky cam Facebook video.
0: Yeah, totally, totally. You know, and usually with like not the right like quote unquote language or whatever. Yeah. You know, because uh, people don't let, talk like they're walk, walking out of a fucking bodies and spaces seminar. And I think that that's just where we are with this shit. So I think. To draw this to a close, these two articles in that American Factory documentary made me extremely pissed off. It made it difficult for me to sleep last night. So as usual, when I woke up to get on this call with John, I felt like shit. And we returned to our theme of why nothing feels possible. Yep. Yeah. So that's our ending. Um, (laughs) Join us next week for some other great shit. I had somebody tell me that it's like a moral act of courage to listen to our show because it's so depressing sometimes. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. So uh, I hope you enjoyed this dose of depressing vegetables and uh, stay safe out there. Case numbers are going up. So uh, be careful and uh, we'll see you next week.
1: Yeah. See you next time.